When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. We've got a makeshift crew today. I'm Pete, Tim O'Malley, and then Jake Brown also here. Tim Priester, off on vacation. Yeah, you're makeshift. A makeshift? Uh, yeah, makeshift. Mitch? So we got a lot to cover since it's been more than a month since our last podcast. We've had eight commitments. The uh, Michigan <laughs> series is back on. Uh, and we've got a ton of questions to, to uh, get through in segment two, so... In the Michigan series, let's start with that. Um, I am not a quote-unquote Notre Dame guy in the sense that I did not grow up in South Bend, and I didn't go to Notre Dame. And I've been quite surprised about the number of Notre Dame fans that have come out of the woodwork saying that this series is actually a terrible idea, and it's uh, a big mistake by Jack Swarbrick. So, O'Malley, as a Notre Dame guy... Perhaps you can enlighten me on what I'm missing here. I don't know any of those people. Okay. I really don't. I don't get it. I mean, I, as I wrote on Monday, look, I'm so I'm 43. If you're in your mid-40s or younger than that, you grew up on from fourth grade through college graduation of never losing to USC as a Notre Dame fan. It's a long time. You just, the hatred goes away a little bit. I'm not saying, obviously, people that are older than me and younger than me are the exact opposite. But Michigan-Notre Dame in my lifetime for people a little older than me. Like, I don't remember the games in the late 70s and, and 1980, but 15-15-1 is the best rivalry I can think of in terms of on-the-field play. And even when their teams aren't great, like 2009, both teams weren't any good. Amazing game. 2010, 2011, 2012, 13, those games are they're usually fantastic. You know, there's been a couple blowouts there. Notre Dame finally got their, their blowout to end, quote-unquote, the series. But I, everybody I know that grew up hating Michigan loves to, because they're a Notre Dame fan, loves to play Michigan. I'm, I'm all for the series. Yeah, it's. I think it's a great way to start the season. Yes. I mean, it's something that's easy to look forward to in September. It's almost always a national appeal type right. game. And I mean, I, I remember watching it in college. I remember watching it in high school. I certainly remember covering a lot of them. I thought that they were they were great. Yeah. And I mean, that it was an easy red letter game on the schedule. But there seems to be so there's just like this posturing about like, oh, that's not our biggest rival and like Michigan fans want to play that, which I get Ohio yeah, state fine. Notre Dame fans want to play sure. that, which I get with USC, but I don't understand why you wouldn't want to play that game. I mean, okay. I, I can understand if you're like, Hey, 31, nothing. That's as good as it's ever going to get. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I want, I don't want to invite that back in. That makes sense. The 2019 schedule, Notre Dame is at Louisville, at Georgia, at Michigan, at Stanford. I get that. Sure. Although that is going to be a hell of a fun schedule to cover. Um, what I don't get is like this historical fielding Yost was a hate monger and tried to kill Notre Dame football by smothering it in the nursery. Like that doesn't that doesn't resonate with me as a reason not to play a college football game in 2018 and 2019. No, it's kind of like when Michigan leads the series 24-17, but eight of their wins came before Woodrow Wilson was president. I like yeah. to throw that in every once in a yeah. while. I just don't. It's not that. I don't. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, if you really don't want to play this because you're offended 80, 90, 
four years ago, yeah, 96 yeah. years ago. It's ridiculous. What, what are we looking at right now? It's a great game on the field. It's September's best rivalry. As Pete said, it kind of used to start the college football season. I don't, you know, nowadays you get like Alabama will always play a very good team early and they're always defending champs, so that kind of starts the season. But I always think it's it's like the one game you can count on in early, early September that is a national game that matters. And I do think it's great there's opening the season in two years with it. It's going to be awkward when they play in October. Late yeah, October that's, for that. that's a strange scheduling slot. It's a lot worse for Michigan than it is for Notre Dame yeah. right there. Yeah, I would say I only know Fielding Yost as the namesake of the hockey arena yeah. out there. Like, <laughs> I don't know who that is. He's, yeah. Like, who are the elderly people that are still mad at Fielding Yost? I don't understand yeah. That I mean, for me, it's if you want to clown on Michigan and Harbaugh, why not do it with a game? Right. Yeah, you I know, mean, why you do it from a distance if you, you if you think you can take it to them and you you want your program to be better? Go play them. Yeah, I you, think it's perfect. You want to see Brian Kelly versus Jim Harbaugh? Um, yeah. You know, from a Notre Dame recruiting perspective, you want to get back into New Jersey, mm-hmm. which they're doing a little bit now. You want to continue a little bit about what you're doing in Michigan. I mean, they. Notre Dame can never sign defensive linemen. Well, they got three out of Michigan last cycle, and two of them are expected to really contribute this year. So, I mean, I, I love the series. I understand the difficulty of 2019 being – that's to me, that's a legitimate negative that you've sort of counterbalanced your schedule in a negative way. Now, Michigan had, in 2018 will play Notre Dame, Ohio State, Michigan State all on the road. They'll get them all at home in 2019. And Michigan reportedly had to pay $2 million to yeah, even yeah. do this. So who is this more important to? It certainly seems like it's more important to Michigan than it is to Notre Dame. It makes my TV better. It makes my stadium seat better. It makes the yeah. press box better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It helps the ticket office. It helps the ticket office. There's legitimate... It's not like they hate each other all the time because the kids don't necessarily all know each other like the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry would, but there's plenty of interaction. Then it's just a natural thing. I mean, even Charlie Weiss got up from Michigan. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just... It, it's, it brings the best out... And in in the fan bases and the players, and I mean, there's a different feeling when Notre Dame beats Michigan or Michigan beats Notre Dame to the season for that fan base the rest of the way. Yeah, yeah. I, I like they're not easing their way into the schedule. You know, yeah. there's no no boring games to lead off the season. You can jump right into a rivalry game that makes college football way better. Yeah, yeah. I want to see Rayshon and Gary chase around Brandon Wimbush. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, I'm I'm all for it. I but I like I said, I've been just dumbfounded by the number of Notre Dame fans I've talked to. They're like, this is a terrible idea. Jake made a good point. It's yeah. the summer they need someone to complain yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're hot. Yeah. <laughs> we have sort of a, a pseudo question, and we're going to work in this segment one before jumping into uh, about a dozen questions. And that was, I think it came from our message board, and somebody wanted us to revisit last season and give a three-word sort of blurb take on each game and sort of pick the one that you felt was the most telling of the season. So O'Malley and I are going to tackle this. Let me flip to my notes oh, here. Yes. but uh, I might cheat on the three words once in a while, but it will never be long. So. As, as, pre- as Priester once said, it's my podcast. I'm not sticking to anyone's <laughs> rule. <laughs> you can do as you please. Um, so I, I guess, Tim, out of the gate, I guess we're starting with, we'll That's, go chronologically. Yeah, Texas. Should, yeah. Um, Mismatch. Mismatch. Yeah, mismatch, I think we saw, and it played out that way. Yeah, I, I was more in the, it was, it backed up expectations, but only for the offense. Yeah. Uh, so, Virginia. Uh, you hit it, you don't need to expand on this, you hit it when you wrote the game story. Shock and awesome. Was it your title of the game story? Yeah. It was the best title of the year? That was amazing that that happened. I, uh, in the offseason, I changed to Tenuta's Revenge until it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that there. Yeah. Uh, Georgia Tech. Thank God for Bob Elliott. 
That's actually what I put for the Navy game. Um, I went the most overrated win of the Brian Kelly era, and I mean that, like, I overrated it. I thought that was an amazing win at the yeah. time. It turned out Georgia Tech was terrible. It did feel like it was going to be the game of the, the best game played by a football team that year, and then it turns out a lot of people did that mm-hmm. against Georgia Tech. UMass. Hey, it's Wimbush. I, I went uh, Van Gorder's defense exposed. Yeah. We just probably didn't really know it as was happening, but that, right, to me right. that was really one of the first cracks of like, things are not going as well as we thought that they would. Yeah, an 83-yard untouched touchdown run against the first string in the first quarter yeah. early there, early in the game. That that was kind of telling. Yeah. Wasn't the quarterback for UMass pretty good? Yeah, he was. Blake yeah. Thornapple. Yeah. 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 Clemson. I was told there would be no math. The uh, I mean, it's just... It's, <laughs> I still... I, I'm never going to let that one go. But... I, I, this is the telling game for me of the season because by the end of the year you realized, wow, Notre Dame was as good as anybody in the country when they were fully healthy. Yeah, uh, in a monsoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you can't even mention the game <laughs> yeah, without pretty. comma in a monsoon. Um, I like the pregame the, in the air tonight with the yeah. whole thing. That, I don't Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, that was plug, fun. That's right. That came up. And uh, then we're moving on to Navy. You used Bob Elliott. I was God bless Bob Elliott. For me, it was kind of the jig is up. Like, yeah, we, they've they've solved the option when they have the players to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the USC. Adori, I'll never forget that uh, opening play yeah. with Will Fuller running by Adori Jackson. It, it, it really set the tone too because that was it was an answer that was that was so important. Mm-hmm. I saw him by the way at the opening. He Adore, was, out he was there. just yeah. hanging out. I didn't say anything. You didn't mention. I left that one. <laughs> left that you one go up and shake his hand yeah. and then try to run right by him. <laughs> no, no. Was he no. four yards behind you? The whole time? <laughs> yeah, I went with identity check because I felt like this was the first of a three-game stretch that really told me what Notre Dame was about last season. Um, so, yeah, ID check. And then I think we're on a temple after that. Still the same. They just can't shake those road the way they play on the road. You got, they came in the season in a five-game, real true road game losing streak. Virginia was rough. Lost the Clemson game. And although they beat Temple, it took everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I went ID check part two because, <laughs> I mean, it was... The defense was a little ball over the place. You had a young quarterback, but very gutsy. And, it, and in a way that... Virginia felt somewhat lucky to me. This one felt this this one felt more like I knew Notre Dame was going to figure out a way to win the game, whereas at Virginia, I didn't feel that way. Uh, and then Pittsburgh. This one's for uh, Pete to expand on. Will freaking Fuller. Yeah. Want to drop that story? <laughs> from yeah, we uh, so we're doing our little videos after the game, and um, O'Malley did a sidebar on Will Fuller, and as he's doing the video, he's, he's talking more loudly and more loudly into the microphone to the point that he's yelling um and we had he was we had, great we, we had to stop the video and uh have have tim take a cold shower come back cigarette and then record about his uh opus about will fuller but yeah that was those id check part three um offense was great i thought the coaching staff was great they got out to pittsburgh a day early that was a some yeah. sort of an interesting look into Notre Dame trying to find different buttons to push to get the football program firing on all cylinders. Uh, and then Wake Forest. I have a story for this one. Can't, okay. can't hold down to three words. Well, the, word, the three are two to seven. That is what, at Notre Dame, we used to have parties. People would throw a two to seven somewhere after the bars closed on Saturdays. Or on Thursdays, excuse me, on Thursdays. At some point, apparently before the Wake Forest game, Notre Dame players must have thrown a two to seven because they were still <laughs> feeling the effects for the entire afternoon on Saturday. I went with, I don't remember anything about this game. <laughs> Boston College. Yeesh. Gross. Word. Yeah, gross. Good gross. word. That's just... Fenway Park was nice. <laughs> and then we're on to Stanford. I have two here. Don't blame the offense. And poor Kaiser is from hero to afterthought. 
I went with Kaiser the Hero until Kevin Hogan was. That was rough for uh, for all. That, that's that's a killer for Notre Dame fans. I still have the video uh, of the field goal pre-strammer behind the goalpost down there. <laughs> just it, it, boy, that kick was never had a chance to miss. Yeah, it, I can yeah. still picture it. Yeah, it was interesting. I had heard this sort of secondhand, so don't take this as gospel. But they were they actually were going to save Kaiser's touchdown play for a play later due to too the, much time. The clock. Wow. That's... So they were conscious of maybe we have too much time and the coaches, it sounded like they felt like strike now, get this, which, which I get, you got to get, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a criticism of the staff. It's just sort of an interesting backstory on how that played out. No. And really, I mean, that's, that's an indictment because 15 of those yards came because of an accidental face yeah. mask by Rochelle. Mm-hmm. They really shouldn't have been able that easy yeah, to get down the field exactly. with that. And then, uh, Ohio state, no chance for the walking wounded. Yeah. Jalen Jalen Smith's injury was the worst I've ever seen, um, and but it it did sort of when you lump it together with Clemson and Stanford, then you sort of look at it as like okay, big game against elite team with elite coaching. They 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 lost all three of those. They games. had no chance in that one. Entering the game, totally we had a agree. Notre Dame coach on staff, one of the nine assistant coaches, come up to us on the sideline before the game. And ask if we had any eligibility remaining because of all the things that happened yes. that week. They <laughs> were seeing suspensions and injuries at the last second and everything was hurt. It was so when someone says that, do you have any eligibility remaining? You know they, they kind of know what's going on. Yeah. Alright, well that's it for segment one. We've got a ton of questions from our readers from Twitter next on Irish Illustrated Insider. Welcome back to Irish Illustrated Insider. Segment two, questions from our readers, also the Twitter feed. And the first one up is Statman72. He's referencing the quarterback spent a lot of time throwing to receivers in the summer in the involuntary workouts. Normally that's organized by the starting quarterback. So is there any insight into whether Deshaun Kaiser is leading those workouts or Malik Zaire is leading those workouts or... How, who determines how many throws does Brandon Wimbush get? They, they determine it. This yeah. Is, it's, yeah, the, the, it's the voluntary the main, if it's involuntary, and and Paul, the strength and conditioning staff is there, there's obviously a chart set up. But I mean, he's talking about quarterbacks throwing. Yeah, it's Deshaun Kaiser calls Torrey Hunter Jr., Kevin Stefferson, and whoever else, and they go throw. I mean, I, I'm sure that they're all doing it together at this point. When they're together, Malik Zaire didn't didn't you know stay on campus for he was training out on the West Coast. But no, this is this is like. For lack of a better word, it's college kids getting together and throwing the ball around, only it's very organized in an organized place on campus. It's, it has nothing to do with Brian Kelly deciding how they're going to divvy up the reps, yeah. if that's what that question's asking, which it seems like, at least how it's worded, it is. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is a question that was probably more relevant 10 years ago or three years ago when they didn't have the OTAs, right. which are involuntary opposed to these voluntary ones, where the coaches do get to decide who gets the throws, and I would assume that it's very much like spring practice, where... Deshaun Kaiser and Malik Zaire getting almost all the work, and Brandon Wimbush is getting very little of the work. But that's, I think, in terms of whether you know there's a phone tree and Malik Zaire is not included, I don't think that's the case. I mean, if look, if if it's Tommy test, Reese and Everett Golson could coexist in the summer and throw throw seven on seven, then certainly Kaiser and Zaire yeah. can because they actually like each other. All right, next question is from Lou for Prez. And it's a bit long-witted, uh, taking from ESPN's Championship Drive podcast, where Adam Rittenberg, uh, ESPN reporter, made the case that Michigan shouldn't play Notre Dame on an annual basis, and that playing Notre Dame actually helps Michigan less than playing Michigan helps Notre Dame. 
uh, and he wants to know, should I start believing again that Notre Dame is irrelevant in the college football world? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're yeah. still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if, when he's saying a three-loss Notre Dame, a two-loss Notre Dame team, you're much better off beating handing Notre Dame one of their two losses in a 10-2 and two season than beating the fifth-best team in the SEC West. Right. Um, if you catch Notre Dame in a year where everything goes south, like in 2014, like that win by Florida State by the end of that year wasn't anything for their resume. The, the, the famous win down in Tallahassee yeah. looked like the best. It looked like the win over. That was the game of the year at that point. It was they had it as the best win over a team. ESPN at like one week later in the entire country. Mm. There, but obviously they lost that. But that you can't. So I disagree with the premise of the question. Or the premise of the answer. I'm sorry. I I think playing a normal Notre Dame team against a normal random SEC team, it behooves you to play Notre Dame. Yeah, I, I emailed Rittenberg about this. So I'm like, did you really say this? Uh, and his point was basically that whereas Notre Dame gets, if they beat Pac-12 teams, they get what would be the equivalent of the Pac-12 playoff bid. If they had beaten Stanford, if the Pac-12 got a playoff team in, it would actually be Notre Dame. Whereas if Notre, if Michigan beats Notre Dame, they're not getting that sort of one-to-one Pseudo-auto bid that doesn't right. Have a It's a little bit more muddled when you go Notre Dame and then to somebody else, whereas if Michigan goes out and plays an SEC team, and I, I, would, I my point would be, like, it needs to be somebody better than Arkansas. Yeah, I think we needed someone you, other than Arkansas. You can't there. have the, the Pac-12 team be Cal, uh, or probably even Washington. Right. Um, it needs to be a top 15, a, a championship Somebody who's playing in your championship game. Right. So this year, if you beat Tennessee, because they're yeah. the number one ranked right. you know, preseason team in the East. Yeah. Play. It's like, would Michigan be better off beating Tennessee this year or beating Notre Dame this year? Probably beating Tennessee. Sure. But not Arkansas. Yeah. But not Arkansas. Yeah. So I think that's sort of, well, that was Adam's point, And I, I agree with them to about halfway on it. Um, I, I think there's some room. And the other part of the question was, Adam reported that the Michigan series is back on primarily because... Harbaugh and UM's new AD pushed it. And his point is like, it's almost equally equivalent that Dave Brandon was not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing as Texas, but in the reverse. The re- the reason this series even exists is because Notre Dame dropped the final two games of the Texas series, and that's because Steve Patterson was now former mm-hmm. Texas AD, was there, and Jack Swerver couldn't stand him. So that's how all that works. Uh, we got some Twitter questions. And the first one from Matt Miller. More likely on the Notre Dame coaching staff in 2017, Mike Sanford or Brian Van Gorder? Mike Sanford. I think Brian Van Gorder is one season. He's got one season left where the defense doesn't live up to expectations. And at that point, you can no longer you know, keep him. He's got to go at that point. You have to maximize what you're getting, and I don't think he's done that so far. I do like the question, though. It's an interesting take on it because if let's say it's similar to last year like Notre Dame's offense is even better because it would have to be to be similar to last year um who's not offering Mike Sanford one of these jobs that's I guess it depends on what jobs are open yeah I don't think I'm not gonna Miami of Ohio is my example that level obviously he's not Miami of Ohio is gonna have Chuck Martin last year so it's a bad example this year but it's a bad example but that level of like mid-level Mac he's not taking that to leave Notre Dame but the other examples are I mean If you get a any SEC thrown at you, any Pac-12 job thrown at you, that's 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 a nice offer. Yeah, I mean, and they're happy here, but I'm just saying that's a nice offer. Let's say Tennessee implodes this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's a pretty good job. Yeah, it's a pretty good job. I mean, my answer would be Ryan Van Gorder for a couple reasons. One, I think Sanford is just that close to being a head coach at a Power 5 job. And I also think, look, Brian Kelly's never fired an assistant since he's been at Notre Dame. So why would he suddenly start now? Um, so next up, Angry Badger. Which true freshman or redshirt freshman do you think will make the biggest impact on this year's roster? Other than Sean Crawford? How about, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think Sean Crawford, Sean Crawford. It's, is the redshirt freshman answer. So let's just limit it to true freshman because Sean Crawford is sort of a discussion killer. He's too good. I'm going to go with Dalen Hayes. Hopefully he's healthy and we can get a look at, Yeah, I haven't seen him healthy in a few years as a recruit, so I want to yeah. see him healthy and bulked up and ready to go. And I think he's... He's a guy that, if he is healthy, man, he can he can add some sort of pass rush, hopefully. I was going to go with Dalen Hayes, so I'll, I'll swing that and cheat and go with a wide receiver. I think one of those guys is going to step up and be a major yeah. part of the uh, wide, so, yeah. wide receiving corner. As you've written in the past, that's not normal for Brian Kelly teams, but they're so young, and just losing, I mean, losing Corey Robinson might not end up mattering, except it matters a lot to the guy that's going to play instead of him. Yeah, And exactly. I think it could be one of those guys. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going with Dalen Hayes, too. Like, Notre Dame doesn't have everybody like him. Mm-hmm. So they got to play him, and if he's healthy, it's I, I'm going to have to retire. I, I think I've said Colin Hill plus on like eight straight podcasts. <laughs> but I mean, if he, can, if he can just be like an edge rusher and situational, that is a huge yeah. valuable piece of the puzzle because they don't have it. Colin Hill's a lot better than I remember. Yeah, he's, he, gets, he gets better every yeah. podcast. I'm going to be watching a lot of Texas Tech this year. All right, next up, this is from Carly Bug. And he wants to know, replacements for Brian Kelly and Jack Swarbrick, who comes to mind for you guys? Other than Tom. It's our tough one. And this is an immediate... Or, We're saying after this year. Yeah, not way down after the, this podcast. Yeah, and way down the line, because obviously Mike Sanford comes to life. If you're going in yeah. an ideal world, Kelly's around for four more years, Mike yes. Sanford takes over. But Tom Herman would be... Yeah, he's you know, top of my list. Yeah, he's... I know the name. We, speaking of podcasts and names, like to throw yeah. around. I know that. Uh, yeah. What if what if Bob Diaco, as you said, wins nine games? Then... Yeah. I mean, if if Bob Diaco wins the American Conference this year, he's going to be a hot name that's going to move up to a Power Five level. Um, I, here's to Kelly winning. He would exactly have... ten games, so he can't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tom Herman is number one, and the gap between number one and number two is huge. Oh goodness, that is yeah. a gap. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think Diaco, we talked about Brian Harson at Boise State. Does do you maybe somehow keep Mike Sanford because of that? I don't know, because they work together. Um it's almost like getting stepped over there. It's not. Yeah, there's like there's a lot of guys. Um, you know, Justin Fuente just took a job at Virginia Tech. I think he would have been really interesting. Yeah. Um, but there's just not a lot of there's not a lot of material out there. And I feel like this this question got asked last year too, and boy, it was, it was it's just hard to pick out guys. Yeah, um, and there are some guys that have fallen from grace too that I know were on the short list. Yeah, have fallen way off just, that short list at this point. It's it's, that's what happens. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to stay on the keep winning eight, eight nine, ten games to stay on the short list. Yeah. Um, and it's also difficult for coaches to pick up from a power five job and move to another one. It's very, it's very rare. It should be pointed out that for the first time in a couple of years of podcasts that we don't uh, believe this will happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, of course, then it won't. All right, next up, Alex Mueller. He wants to know, which quarterback do you think would handle being the backup better, Malik Zaire or Deshaun Kaiser? I mean, silence is the answer there. Um, I, I will say neither. However, if I have to pick one, which is what these games are about, Zaire, because he has to be the one more resigned to it right now, deep, 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 
deep down inside. <laughs> Way deep. Way deep. But Deshaun <laughs> Kaiser does not have a inkling of any type that he is backing up Malik Zaire to start this season. None. At all. I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I, I think they both are that way. I don't. I don't think there is a deep, deep. There's deep, no deep, recess deep. of truth that. Could nope. be. <laughs> I. I think it is going to come as a broadside oh, yeah. to either of them, and I, and I. As much as I think the the knee jerk answer is Malik Zaire because of his personality, I think it's equal. I mean, I think it's going to be equally crap situation, oh, yeah. it's, whether yeah. it's Zaire or it's Kaiser. Yeah, I would say Zaire, and you're right. It's because of his person. You like you. No, I'm yeah. happy-go-lucky. You think he can just hit, but there's something deep, deep, deep inside him where it'd <laughs> be really one. pissed off if that happened. I feel like it. I don't think that's that deep. I think that's you're like not, surface yeah. level, shallow, shallow, shallow <laughs> yeah. under there. Yeah, I mean, because you saw when he was backing up Everett Golson, Brian Kelly's making the jokes about falling asleep after eating Chipotle, and being, <laughs> like he was just sort of disengaged. This this socks like was not handling being a backup. In a reasonable set situation, very well. Yeah, he was. That was a reasonable situation yeah. too at that time. He but was he so was much younger. But he was, was pissed off about it. Right. He thought he was going to beat out Everett Golson that fall camp and never had a shot. Well, for all we know, Golson was kicking the ball over the field and he maybe yeah. had a portent of things to come in August. <laughs> no, but that's what a coaching job it'll have to be for Mike Sanford and Brian Kelly to uh, massage their way through that. I don't know what you do. Uh-huh. It, it is going to be, especially the beginning. Yeah. I mean, well, and also. When do you, it's a tough job for Kelly. When do you pull a quarterback in these situations? Yeah. You go with Kaiser and you're down on the road. You're not pulling him against Texas. He brings you back all the time. Yeah, you would have to. It would have to be really, really bad practices followed by those exact same mistakes in games that make yep. you think to make the change. It's uh, for either side. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We forecast Kaiser, but we're not certain. That's uh, why they get paid the big bucks, right? Yeah. Break, <laughs> breaking news: Sports is not fair. <laughs> uh, and our last question: A quick answer for this one. Uh, Brian Kellner wants to know. Are there any other upgrades coming to the program? Jack Swarbrick has sort of talked about sports science and mental development, uh, facility upgrades, etc. The only thing I would throw out there is sort of the repurposing of the Goog or construction of the group for a legitimate training table so they're not eating in the recruiting lounge anymore. Beyond that, I feel like, and Swarbrick has said this, the program's really in as healthy shape as it's been since Swarbrick's been here and certainly since BK has been here too. I mean, I feel like they, they almost have everything the way that they want it. Whatever they were eating when I interviewed BK a few weeks ago, and it was lunchtime, I mean, they got it made, man. That yeah. smelled great. That was just... <laughs> yeah. I walked through there, thought to myself, I'd just give up this interview to go sit there and eat. Yeah. And, uh, it looked... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they just don't want to serve it in, an, <laughs> yeah. uh, in a conference right. room. That's true, in a conference yeah. room anymore. So, yeah, they have a little, a little more upgrade of that. But All right, well, that's it for segment two on Irish Illustrated Insider. Segment three, a lot of recruiting. Jake's here to talk the opening impressions. We had a few more questions from our readers about what's happening with Notre Dame's classes in 2017 and 2018 after this. Segment three of Irish Illustrated Insider brought to you by irishillustrated.com. We're talking recruiting, and Notre Dame has picked up eight commitments since our last <laughs> podcast, which I think is probably a record and maybe says more about our podcast scheduling than anything else. But we're going to talk specifically about the last two. They both happened at the opening. Four-star athlete C.J. Holmes of Connecticut and four-star offensive lineman 
Robert Hainsey of Florida. Jake, you were out at Nike for five days, I think? Uh, way too long. <laughs> way, way too long. So you saw both these guys <laughs> go through the whole sort of prodding, testing, measurement, seven-on-seven seven in the case of Holmes. What did you like from these guys? Where do they need to get better? What do you feel like Notre Dame's getting overall? I think we'll start with Holmes uh, since he committed first, and he in some ways backed up what we saw at Irish Invasion. I think we all really liked him at Irish yeah. Invasion. Super explosive, athletic catching the ball well. He did not catch the ball as well in Oregon, and there's been some speculation that maybe he hurt his hand. He didn't tell us that, and his dad didn't tell us that. Maybe it's true, I don't know. But he was letting the ball into his body mm-hmm. too much. I mean, ball bouncing off his chest and hitting the ground. Um, but then he would go on a run of, like, eight catches in a row where, you're like, wow, he picked that one off his shoe top. So it's just a little inconsistent. Um, but I like what Notre Dame got there. If you're going to start him as a running back and split him out, he doesn't have to have perfect hands. Um, so yeah, super explosive athlete that they can do some different things with in their offense. And Hainsey is exactly what Harry Heastan likes. He's a, an ass kicker. Like he, he's not quite Quentin Nelson, but who is? No. Yeah. Um, but he's not going to back down. I think he's probably a guard. Um, he took reps at center, left guard, and left tackle. And he was a little shaky on the first day, but I thought he really settled in and, and had a really nice week. A couple like really reps that where he really stoned a guy, and that's hard to do in that setting. Yeah, I mean, Holmes, the, the C.J. Prosize comparison was what Notre Dame tried to do in recruiting, which yeah. is okay, but, I mean, Prosize, to me, was much bigger. Also, he wrote and rolled as a defensive back and moved right. to receiver and, you know, didn't really blossom yeah. for, until his fourth right. my, year. Yeah, my only problem with that comparison is you're comparing C.J. Holmes now to what Prosize ended up being. Yeah. Um, and I, that doesn't quite make sense to me, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, he's that... They're calling it like a slash type of role where yeah. you can do a bunch of different things with them. And Hainsey, I one I really liked his attitude in the video clips uh-huh. that, that I saw, uh, and I just like the way that he's built. Whereas, I think you looked at Parker Boudreau or Dylan Gibbons as interior guys, and you're like, how much bigger can they right. get? Hainsey, you feel like he's still growing into yeah. his body and can sort of you know bulk up that way without losing athleticism. I think that's a real positive. Yeah, definitely. He's his dad's a little taller too. I mean, there's definitely a lot of room to grow there. Mm-hmm. I think he's a he's a guard probably with almost left tackle feet, which is which is great. Yeah, it's like if you can get Nick Martin out of him who enrolls a tackle. Yeah. I mean, that would be that would be amazing for Notre Dame. And that okay, getting into the next question with the addition of Hainsey, how many more offensive linemen will Notre Dame add in this class is a question from Tom Seven, and I will pose my own question. Who is the best player you saw at the opening? Because I think the answers are probably yeah. linked together. <laughs> they are. I think you take one more for sure, and if if you get Foster Serrell and Trey Smith calls later and says, hey, I want him, yeah, you right. take them both, sure. and you figure it out later. Uh, I think with the way they're recruiting offensive line right now, all their targets are basically elite. So yeah. if if a couple more want to come, great. And, and uh, yeah, the best player for me was Foster Serrell. I was really impressed. And this is a kid from basically rural Washington, um, way out in the Seattle-Tacoma burbs. And I didn't really know what to expect with him on a big stage like this against like elite pass rushers. And like, Josh Kando beat him clean once. And I don't think I saw him lose another rep. You know, I didn't see every rep, but he was really good. I mean, he's big. He moves, I mean, so good for his size. He's got kind of those like basketball player feet where he can yeah. really move around. And, I mean, he was a wall all week. Yeah, I mean, his build seems to be like I am a oversized athlete opposed to an yeah. offensive lineman, which yeah, is that's what I like. It's interesting, too, because like, I, I met his mom. I saw his dad. I saw his parents around. And you look at his parents, and you don't think they kicked out an, an offensive <laughs> lineman. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense when yeah. you look at them. But 
I, I, he's just blessed with incredible size and agility and and foot speed. I mean, he's he, he could very easily be the the best player in this class. Period. And yeah, I think one is guaranteed because you can't really go three this class, three the last class, and two right the with previous the class on the offensive line. Mm-hmm. So two would be great because if you think about it, they got to prepare for McGlinchey leaving before his fifth year, even though he might come back. You also got to think some of these guys didn't hit, mm-hmm. and you also yes. have to prepare for at least one of Nelson or Bars, probably Nelson, not taking his fifth year. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, and you made this point in your Monday Musings just about how there's really sort of a, almost like a generation gap on the offensive yeah. line mm-hmm. after the Nelson-Bars class, and that's what this class currently, Foster Sorrell, Trey Smith, right. guys like that, they're, they're the ones that are most important to bridge that gap. Yeah. I think in recruiting, they're pretty much telling kids that McGlinchey's gone. Like, they assume I he's think gone. I it's smart to, Yeah, they yeah. should. I mean, he could come back because just if he sees that he gets a second-round grade and thinks he get a first because he seems like a guy that if he has a really good year should get a first-round yeah, grade. Absolutely. Just, yeah. measurables and everything. But, yeah, you, you have to prepare for him to be gone. Whereas, I mean, Torrey Hunter Jr. is one of those guys. That, that, the other guy, another possible fifth-year player. There's 50 Torrey Hunter Juniors out waiting, trying to get in the yeah, NFL next absolutely. year where there's not that way for McGlinchey. Yeah, I mean, if McGlinchey could easily look at that, okay... I could go at the end of the first round. It's kind of like Stanley. I could right. go at the end of the first round and make six, seven million dollars mm-hmm. on my first deal, or I could go in the top five and make twenty million dollars yeah, on my so first that's deal. That's why he could come back. Yes, yeah. I mean it was, it's like one of those things. If it was good enough for Zach Martin, it's probably good enough. For <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got a question from C. Pugh. He wants to know how do you see the wide rec- wide receiver class shaping up? Do you like the wide receiver board? And are you surprised at the lack of interest from top hundred type guys? I was actually working on the offensive master list today, so this is perfect. Um, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little perplexed that Michael Young hasn't committed yet. Uh, I thought they were, when we sat in this room after Irish Invasion and yeah. I did an interview with them, I was like, he's he's on board shortly. Yeah, I think you were talking to him while we were. Yeah, yeah, I was, and I thought I thought the, the only thing left is for this kid to go home, think it over, and then call the coaches and let him know if he hadn't, you know, done that already. I'm a little surprised he's not on board. Um, so. I, I like the board, but I think there's there's some interesting competitions there. You know, Cyrus St. Brown is no given. Um, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle with guys like Jeremiah Holloman out of the South, who he likes Notre Dame, but can you hold off Georgia long enough? Um, so there's a little more uncertainty, I think, with the wide receiver board than maybe we expected. I, I kind of thought maybe one more guy at least would be on board right now, and this, this is going to play out into the season. Yeah, and Jameer Calvin from Los Angeles is interesting. Yeah. He, we question about him on our board because he's teammates with Hunter Eccles, right. the four-star defensive end. If you can somehow package them together, and you only have one room for like one of those slot-type receivers, then you got to give that spot to Calvin. Right, yeah, I would. I think they're very comparable. Yeah. And um, I know that Calvin has been in touch with current commits. You know, that's already a thing that's happening, so you got to get mm-hmm. him out here. Um, but, yeah, that's a, to me that's a first-come, first-serve situation and I would almost rather have Calvin just because it, maybe it gives you an edge with Eccles and, and you need more pass rushers. It's interesting because they don't lose any receivers yeah. unless it's Hunter yeah. and then really the next year they don't lose any receivers. Yeah, It would be Corey Holmes but he has a fifth. I mean they're young. They're super young so there is a log jam in the freshman and sophomore classes. You're looking at six guys in front of you that are within two years of yeah. you if you come so you got to be able to beat people out. It's not just a you know, a, a revolving door here. There's, they're going to be around for a while. I would throw Hezekiah Jones in there too. Oh, right. I mean, he'll be back. He's talking a Michigan State game, um, and you know, he wants to decide later. But he was pretty high on Notre Dame coming out of the spring, and that's a little muddled now with A and M and some other schools in the mm-hmm. mix. But he's a guy I could see Notre Dame getting eventually. 
Vic Irish one has a question. Is it unusual to have a defensive coordinator not be very active on the recruiting trail, such as Brian Van Gorder? With his temperament and knowledge, you would think it would be best suited to express his defensive philosophy to top defensive recruits. Is he as inactive on the recruiting trail as he appears? And is this a normal strategy? I would say the last defense coordinator I had who was a really good recruiter was Greg Madison. Um, so I, it's not overly uh, unique. But you were out in the opening. This is a fairly interesting anecdote. Yeah, first of all, it's not that unusual. I mean, yeah. not every coach on a staff is going to be a go-getter recruiter. It's just not. It's just the way it works. Not everybody likes to do it. Um, so, yeah, we were talking to Baron Browning, who, you know, five-star linebacker, by the way. I thought he was much higher on Notre Dame than I thought he was going to be. I thought he would be kind of like, eh, yeah, I took some visits in the Midwest, and they're okay. Yeah. yeah, but I was, I mean, he's already talking about coming back for the Stanford game, so obviously Notre Dame resonated there. But, yeah, he was... We were talking to him about um, the coaches he talked with during his visit, and he was like, yeah, I talked with Coach Kelly, and he was trying to bring a defensive coach's name to his mind. And myself and Tyler James from the Tribune were like, uh, Brian Van Gorder. And he goes, yeah, Brian Van Gorder. And then we continued with the interview, and, and Mike Elson came up, and, and Browning goes, oh, no, that's who I was trying to think of earlier, Mike Elson. <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, that's not, I mean, that's, but that's kind of, it kind of reflects what we've, heard or not heard about Brian Van Gorder during his time here as a recruiter. He goes out, he does what he has to do, but he's not, I don't think he's on Twitter, like, blowing kids up. Like, it's just not part of his personality. He's more of a, you get the kids to campus, I'll talk with them once they get here. And I think he's very detailed and good enough when they're on campus, but he's not uh, an elite or a very active recruiter. I I would compare his recruiting style to an NFL coach dealing with free agency. Yeah. Where it's like, come visit. If you want to come, great. Here's our scheme. Here's how you'd fit in. Yes. Let's watch film. I love football. <laughs> yes. um, but in terms of like the showing love or no. blowing a kid up on Twitter or like really building this great relationship with the prospect's girlfriend, um, <laughs> that's not his. St- I mean, and that that is why you have Audrey Denson uh-huh. and Mike Dembrock and Mike Elston, and Todd Light, Keith, G- like. Basically, you have the rest of the staff right, to do exactly. that because um, that's not Van Gorder's strength, and it's yeah. it's not going to be. At least he keeps the points off the board, guys. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah he's uh, – <laughs> as far as coordinators go, Mike Sanford is one of the more active yeah. recruiters that Notre Dame has had. I mean, he was last winter meeting Javon McKinley's mom in Dallas when she was there on business. Like, I don't see Brian Van Gorder doing that. No, I mean, know, I remember and, seeing <laughs> Sanford tweet out a photo of him riding around in a fire truck with uh, McKinley's dad. <laughs> right. Like – that's yeah. not stuff that Van Gorder's doing. I would yeah. immediately commit to Sanford if I was a 17-year-old offensive prospect. Absolutely. Like his the his delivery and clarity of message in interviews, you know it has to translate over into yes. living rooms. Yeah. I think that's reflected in the commitments Nordium has at quarterback right now. Yeah. Uh, and let's wrap up the podcast on this. How many more guys in the class and who's next? I think we all expect that to be uh, Darnell UL. On Friday, yep. defensive tackle from Virginia. But in terms of guys in the class, looking sort of in the, the 24 range, maybe pushing 25, I think Notre yeah. Dame's decided, like, screw it. We're going yes. to be a lot more aggressive yes. in yep. terms of our numbers than they have been really for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, like Notre Dame never gets to 25. Right. Like, because so, they never get to 85. Right. Yeah. So just. They don't get to 24. Yeah, yeah. just try like crazy to get to 80 or get to 25. And if yeah. you do, figure it out later. Yeah. And if you end up at 23 again, that's fine. But yeah, Darno, you'll, I expect by what, 12 30 on Friday, he'll mm-hmm. be part of the class. And at that point, Notre Dame is done at Defensive interior tackle. defensive line. 
um, with a really nice haul, and then you still got to find some edge guys. And I thought there were you know, a couple guys at the opening that, you know, that they can continue to chase. Yeah, Hunter, the Hunter defensive Eccles. end from Maryland, who's not Josh Pascal. Kando. Josh Pascal was fairly yeah. interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, the not Josh Kando guy. Yeah. Um, it seems like they have some guys on the board, and I think I think Keith Gilmore's having a pretty good recruiting uh-huh. cycle this year. I think Scott Booker's having a very good recruiting cycle because he's sort of in the homes, Tariq Black, yep. but also getting into Virginia. So to get Ewell or Ewell would be impressive too. So uh, overall, I mean. We had some questions about sort of how Notre Dame's recruiting. Overall, I, I would say that they are doing quite well. Absolutely. Um, especially considered where they were when Hunter Johnson went to Tennessee and Robert Beal dropped them. This class looked like it was going to be pretty shaky, but I, I think they picked it up big time. Yeah, I think uh, as Steve and I talked about this in our last instant analysis from Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening to me is a, is a litmus test for Notre Dame recruiting. Whether they get a lot of guys from the opening or not, it's – about how many elite type kids are mentioning Notre Dame, interested in Notre Dame, want to visit Notre Dame. Not all of that's going to pan out, but you have multiple guys that I thought were higher on Notre Dame than I expected, and multiple guys that are like, "Yeah, I'll be there." Like Hunter Eccles told me, whenever the coaching staff calls me and says visit this weekend, I'll be there. And he's committed to UCLA, and he doesn't have to come to Notre Dame, but he yeah. wants to, and I think that's that's reflective of a good recruiting campaign so far. And you know, we only got what another four months before we. Yeah. Have- Signing day will be right around, <laughs> yeah, the right around the corner. You mentioned numbers. <laughs> and speaking of signing day, you should end every signing day with 89 guys on your roster. Yep. 89 yeah. to 90. It'll easily work out. They, they're they gone every, single, every year. single time. I mean, you don't even need to try yeah. to get them off there. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it, it's unfortunately, the, some of the wrong guys sometimes. The, yeah, it's like for the cost of a few awkward spring practice <laughs> questions, yeah. when we say, Brian Kelly, how are you going to get down to 85? And he can just say, ah, you know, because <laughs> they'll figure it out. That's how college football works. So, that's it for Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. Jake Brown, Tim O'Malley, Pete Sampson, thanks for listening.